bad boy. He is good as me. <laughs> Sorry, the notes are a little different to what they were. <laughs> um, he is he is calling us so strongly. Do you do you hear that? Um, and he's wanting us to respond. He's wanting us to respond. And he's wanting to help us over the stuff that stops us going there. And I just want to have a wee look. I was going to do this at the end, but a wee look in some things that happen in, in Luke 8. And I want to look at, like, a few different responses to Jesus. So I'm going to ramble probably um, because it's here and I'm not going to read a whole lot of stuff. But at the beginning of Luke 8, we've got the centurion with um, the, the servant that's um, unwell and he's crying out for help. And evidently in those days, um, the Roman... Um, authorities, they actually had the right to kill a slave that was unwell and that, you know, um, could not render service to them. But he had this compassion for him. And we know the story that he um, asked Jesus to come and then he met him on the road and he said, look, you don't have to come, just say the word. And we see this humility in this faith this humility and faith, recognizing who Jesus is, the authority that he has, and coming with this humble heart to say, look, don't even, you don't need to bother yourself coming into a Gentile house. Then we have, um, we have an interaction um, from the disciples, from, from John. But at the end of that, there's this other group of people. Jesus was surrounded by groups of people all the time. We have this, um, I'm now around about um, verse 28. Um, so um, Jesus is responding about John and saying, I say, to you, among those born of women, there is no one greater than John, yet he who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. Listen to the response. When all the people and the tax collectors heard this, they acknowledged God's justice, having been baptized with the baptism of John. Yeah, I can relate to that because I went through the waters of baptism. What was the baptism of John? Do you remember? The baptism of repentance okay so they responded because they had already um, had repented and and been led and prepared which was what G, um, John was sent for but look at this next verse but the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected God's purpose for themselves not having been baptized by God by John interesting isn't it so not only did they, they refuse the preparation that God had sent, but they also, this was now a blockage for them receiving what Jesus was saying. And then Jesus describes them. <laughs> to what then shall I compare the men of this generation and what are they like? They are like children who sit in the marketplace and call to one another. And they say, we played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not weep. And he, he talks about this rejection of both John and himself for opposite reasons. <laughs> what, what he is pointing out is that there's something about their response. They... They have this heart of pulling back and observing and um, 
calling the shots. They want to be in control. And if it doesn't happen the way that they think it should happen, they have no ears to hear because they're very quick to speak and very slow to hear. Then we come into another scenario. One of the Pharisees was requesting him to dine with him. I wonder if he was one of these ones that had exactly the same attitude. Maybe, I don't know. But as you read on, this Pharisee's name was Simon. And he was checking Jesus out. There's no doubt about it. He was checking Jesus out. So he invites him to dine with him. Very gracious, maybe, but not really, because I think he had an ulterior motive. And so Jesus comes in, and he's reclining at the table, and they, you know, they used to lie with their head, and you know, reclining that way, and their feet were away from the table. And so Jesus was reclining at the table. Now this this woman turns up, a woman who's called a sinner notorious sinner. So they think possibly she was a prostitute. And we know the story. She comes in to this man's house. This man that's got this attitude, you know, pointing fingers and observing from afar and criticizing and judging and um, calling the shots. And this woman comes into that place what could, what could have happened to her that would allow her to overcome what she must have had to overcome? And we know the story. She is overcome with love for Jesus. And she is weeping. She is anointing his feet, not his head, his feet. She's taking the humble posture And she is loving on Jesus. And she's weeping so much that she doesn't have a cloth to use, so she's wiping her hair, and and it's all very messy. But she is pouring out her heart of love. In this atmosphere of checking Jesus out, and then, of course, we have this, this conversation that, that Simon is thinking in his heart, mm, doesn't Jesus know what kind of woman she is? Like, man, this, this is solicitation happening right in front of me, you know? And he, he, has, he, he doesn't see, he doesn't perceive, because this mindset is, is his filter. It's the only way he sees life. So here is Christ right in front of him, right in front of him, and he cannot see it. It's like I thought of the other day. It's like a needle in a haystack when you're looking for hay. You're never going to find a needle, are you? If you don't know that there's a treasure to go for, you will not look for treasure. You will just look for all the other things that will discount the treasure. So he's in this place and having this, these thoughts, and Jesus calls him on it. And you know, Jesus was incredibly gentle how he did this. It, it very much reminds me of Nathan the prophet and how he went to, to David when David had, had um, you know, done his thing with Bathsheba. And he basically presents a case for David's judgment. Well, this is what Jesus does with, with Simon and he talks about you know, the two debtors and that one, one owed a heap of money and one only owed a little bit and, and they were both forgiven their debt. And he asked Simon, so who do you think loved that, the, the one who forgave them the most? And he sort of grudgingly said, well, I suppose it's the one that was forgiven a lot. You know, but he doesn't just leave it there. He says, you know... When I came in, you didn't even wash my feet. But she hasn't stopped washing my feet, not just with water, but with the essence of her love. 
And he calls, he, he compares the two. What is the greatest commandment? That we love God with all our heart, our soul, our mind, our strength, every part of us. And here he was exposing the fruit of Simon's attitude. The little love. Possibly no love, actually. They have been pretty gracious. So there's something in the way we receive and something in what we carry in our hearts when God is speaking. Are we the ones that are quick to speak and slow to hear? I have been so many times. Let's get real. Are we the ones who are very quick to listen and very slow to speak? Are we the ones who will go to Jesus despite the stuff that's around in the the flack that we're coming under, that we will express our love wholeheartedly without any concern for anything else? Will we be captivated by him? You see, there's this depth of him and the relationship that he has for us that he is calling us into in this community. And it really... It grabbed me when Greg came back and, and, and relayed that word that God had given to him. Why do my people draw away from me when I draw near to them? I'm drawing near to them. Why are they drawing away? It broke my heart when I heard that. His heart is to come close. And, and we are afraid, or maybe we don't care, I don't know. There could be a number, I've talked about a few of the things that could be in our heart that would either release, do we have humility and faith, or do we have this other thing? You know, there is... There is something about being uncovered that is innately terrifying to every single human being that ever was and ever will be. You know where it comes from? Let's look. Genesis 3, 7 to 11. Thank you, Robert. You are wonderful. It's like page three. Um, <clears throat> so we're talking about his love setting us free. In Genesis 3, 7 to 11, if you've got that, then the eyes, this is the story of the fall, right? So Adam and Eve have just done what they were told not to do. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. There it is. Genesis 3. Cover, cover. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called to the man and said, Where are you? He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked. So I hid myself. And God said, who told you that you were naked? Can you imagine the effect of the fall on these two who previously had an entirely pure and undefiled heart? I bet we can. I guarantee that we've all thought this at some time in our lives. 
Quick, cover, cover, cover. I have. Every child that has done something naughty has. We have all done it. That is our response. Our response is not, quick, own up, own up, own up. <laughs> it's not, is it? The fall caused such a break in our relationship with God that an inherent in man is the fear of exposure to the deepest level. We must realize this. I'm not talking about physical exposure. I'm talking about letting God see our innermost parts and allowing him access. That's what this is about. When Chris and I first got married, coming up 30 years ago, I had a deep fear in me that when he knew what I was really like, he would stop loving me. Or, at the very best, he would love me less. It was in me. Now, it was, I'm sure, partly because I didn't love me. I, I didn't love a lot of things about me. And I was constantly trying to change myself into the image of what I thought was more acceptable. I was a believer but I was very young in him, and I had an unrenewed mind. Lies in my head were my way of life, and that was the way I was living. So I was open to that. I only say this because I believe that there are many of us who still fear being uncovered before God. We fear our true state, and so we constantly avoid going there with God. We're afraid he'll love us less. We're afraid other people will love us less when they know the ugliness of our true state. But what if the very knowing of our true state causes us to come into a revelation of the immensity of his love that we've previously not known? What if it was relying on that? See, this, this is my living testimony. Because I came from that place and I lived many lives striving, striving, striving to get better. You know the story. I'm sure most of you have heard this. But it was when I came to the end of myself that his love, which was there all the time, I was able to have it revealed in me because I was no longer relying on myself to do it. This continues to happen. This has happened in, big, in a big portion and changed my life a big way. But it's still happening. It's still happening with me. Oh, she's... Something that's still ongoing um, a bit later. But I just want to read um, an article that, that I've, I just found just rang. It was truth, 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 and it was releasing truth. Um, it's by a fellow called Gavin Ortland, something like that. And it's called Repentance Versus Defensiveness. So I'll just read out what he wrote. It seems to me that we tend to respond to accurate criticism in one of two ways, repentance or defensiveness. These two reactions are as different as heaven and hell. A defensive heart says, but look at what I did right. Diversion. A repentant heart says, here specifically is what I did wrong which is honesty. A defensive heart says, but look at what was done. Distraction, done to me. A repentant heart says, here is how I contributed to the conflict, which is ownership. A defensive heart says, it wasn't that bad. Downplaying. And a repentant heart says, it was a big deal. Admission. 
Our default mode in and out of the church seems to be defensiveness. Nothing is more natural when we feel threatened by a criticism than to divert, distract, and downplay. It's as instinctive as flinching when a punch is coming. It's true. Came in the fall. In my experience, a heart of repentance is something I have to work at. I have to say things like, wait a minute, think this through. Why does this criticism hurt you the way it does? Remember your identity is in Christ, so your identity isn't at stake. Relax, is there something you can learn here? It's a counterintuitive feeling, I love this. It's like learning to use a muscle we didn't know we had for, for the first time, or better still, finally learning to relax a muscle we've always kept tight. Yeah. Protect, 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 protect. Oh, I don't have to do that anymore. It's a kind of paradox, an effort at relaxing, a striving to cease striving, a struggle to give up. The gospel alone can free us for honesty, ownership, and admission, because the gospel alone destroys the sting and judgment associated with criticism. Think of the woman coming in. Jesus is the gospel. He alone took away the sting and the judgment, didn't he? He was the safe place, no matter what was going on. The gospel takes away the fear that drives defensiveness and frees us to openly admit our shortcomings. And this is the pathway to life. The gospel says, in the place of your deepest failure and shame, you are loved most tenderly. This is truth. The gospel says your deepest fears were already borne by your saviour. The gospel says your sins were exposed and dealt with at the cross. The battle is already over. It makes me think of a man standing on trial before a large audience. A long list of accurate charges is read. Everyone is watching. He responds, The charges against me are 100% true and fair. I'm responsible. No one else is to blame. There's no excuse. And it is a big deal. A man free to be that non-defensive is the happiest and most indestructible man in the world. He has died to himself. His identity comes from something or someone else. He is fearless. This is what the gospel does for us. In the court of heaven, which matters infinitely more than any human court, we've already been tried and through Christ We've already been acquitted. Thank you, Jesus. Help us to be so secure in your love that we are fearless to repent. That's powerful, eh? If anyone's on Facebook, that's on my Facebook page if you want to have a look at that sometime. Um, so this whole process of coming to him in this unclothed state, this is something that he's just shown me recently because I have always wanted to know him more. That's been the passion of my heart. But he started speaking to me about, I want to know you. And that did my head in, because I thought, but you already know me. You already know everything about me. But you see, there's something about this, something about this he's showing. It's everything about our willingness to be uncovered before him. Now, I'm not talking about physical. Please don't go there. We're talking about our inmost parts, yeah? The parts that we hide. The, the rooms, if you like. I remember talking to one young person and, and God had showed her that he wanted all the doors of every room in her house open. And there were some, and it made her fearful. It, this is common to man. So, the thing is that love comes 
into this place. That's what he's doing now. He's coming and he's assuring us of his love in that place, that place where we feel we can't move. I remember, as by way of another testimony, when I first came to The Rock, um, I, was, I was seeking to be set free of some pretty major stuff, hurts and, and other feelings that I felt were strangling me, almost to the point that I felt I was being spiritually suffocated. That's how intense it was. And I was so desperate and was screaming out to Jesus for help. And here, he met me in the, through the story of blind Bartimaeus, as I have shared before. And there was a specific time that he asked me to throw off that cloak with the specific things that were ensnaring me, ensnaring me. And I shared that message in the, the, the Door of Hope message. There was another aspect. There was this beautiful freedom that came at that time. And you know what? In his grace, it came partly because I was anonymous. I was unknown. And I was so tied up with self-consciousness and fear of man, along with my imagined and otherwise expectations from man, that it had bound me. Um, I had, I think it had quite a bit to do with being a leader's wife or a leader, and I had somehow taken into my heart a false teaching that sort of required me to at least externally have it together for those that I was leading. I have found that that causes the blind to lead the blind, by the way. <laughs> what happened in this time is that God removed the restraints and I was able to express my relationship with Father in the free abandonment of a little child. And it didn't mean if I, it didn't matter at all if I was crying my eyes out, if I was flat on the floor, if I was just still and completely dumb in his presence. It didn't matter what form. And he... I, he renewed in me that, that ability to come as a child. And I tell you what, it's in the core of my relationship with him. And it, he, he showed me pictures of like a father taking a child and spinning them around and, and this dancing with me and this enjoyment that he, this intense enjoyment that he had in my abandonment, in my coming as I was. And I remember thinking at that time, this is so precious and I don't want to ever lose this, no matter what I ever do. And the freedom from, from not caring about what people think about the way we love him, Oh, go after it. <laughs> it's so special. We lose our life to find it, remember? Um, Jesus said that over and over and over again. Matthew 16, 25 20, uh, and 26. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he go, gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? Do we know how precious that is? I have come to the conclusion over the last year, this is, this is just my personal thing, that it's like God gives to each human being their life. And my one purpose is to give it back to him. It's very simple. And in that is all that he is. 
And while we hold on to it, we may see it at a distance, but we never partake. We never partake of the life that is him because he designed it this way. There can't be two gods in us. You know, onto a little bit of um, recent testimony of the ongoing work, the, the lack of that he opens up and then the beautiful way he speaks. You know, in this walk, the nitty-gritty process of transformation, we desperately need each other. We need to be vulnerable and honest with those who love with his love. It, this, it doesn't work on your own. We need to stand in love and help one another to look to the eternal purpose rather than the things of earth. I need that. I need that. I need to be that for others, but I need that myself, big time. And I just want to share bits of, I sort of wrote it in, a, in an email, but I've, it's stuff that was happening at the beginning of February. And um, my prayer is that that I can just demonstrate that his love brings us into freedom. I pray that you would be encouraged, encouraged not to run away from the deep processes of God on the inside, to draw near to him as he's drawing near to us. I pray that you would know his love personally for yourselves and that even if you don't have a revelation of that love yet, that you would trust and step out towards him. I don't know that the centurion had a revelation of God's, of Jesus' love. He, he knew that he was a man with authority, and he came in humility and faith. And, and it's the step towards, even though we might not understand or comprehend, but we know that here and only here is life. Here in Christ and only in Christ is love. Here and only here is freedom. And so we do our bit to step towards it rather than to pull away, yeah? That's what my heart is that, that this would help. So the... Beginning February, I <laughs> got very overwhelmed having preached this wonderful thing about how he was leading me through the storms and the walk on water. Well, yeah, I was looking at the water big time and sinking. I was overwhelmed by everything that was happening. We had a house full of many people. <laughs> And crystal unwell and, uh, you know, all of that stuff was, it started to really get to me. And I was looking in the flesh, looking in the flesh and overwhelmed. I was overwhelmed by seeing Chris in pain all the time. And I was tired. I was completely exhausted. I wasn't accessing <laughs> strength. I was just battling away on myself, you know, trying to do the right thing. It's amazing how quickly you can forget everything that he's taught you and just go back into the old, you know. I'd even got to the point where I was seeing things and then activating it in the old method. So seeing something about Chris and now I've got to fast and pray and fight. <laughs> and I was doing this, you know, all in fear all in fear, not in faith, not in the freedom of the Holy Spirit as he leads you into fasting and praying. I was battling this dark monster because my eyes weren't on him. I wasn't being led by the Spirit. I was back in the flesh. And that's what the flesh looks like. So if you want to know what that's, that's, that's what Sandra looks like when the Holy Spirit's not guiding you. It's really ugly. Anyway, so <laughs> it came to a point where 
Um, I just, like I say, felt really overwhelmed, and and I, I remember reaching out to Chris, I was bawling my eyes out on midnight, reaching out to him just to hold him and say I loved him, and he asked what was wrong, and I couldn't say because I didn't want to burden him, and then I I turned to the Lord and <laughs> I need you to comfort me. My husband can't comfort me at the moment, and he talked to me out of John 1 and this light started to shine and the, the, the verse was in him, it's John 1, 4, in him was life and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. There's only one present tense verb there and it hit me at midnight. <gasps> You're shining. I need that, I need that, I need that, I need that, you know? And it was like something kind of starting to etch into this very shadowy land. It wasn't a quick release. Because there was other parts of this. The next day I came along to, to the service and Paul Costello prayed for me before and after the service. I flooded the ground with tears. You see, I needed to be humble before a, a brother or sister. It wasn't just me and God sorted out the night before and then come back, everything's all good, yep, yep I'm fine. You know, there's processes, processes in me that are still happening. And through that, there was great release and he spoke, he spoke a beautiful word about God being my husband. Not that Chris was going to die, He's not going to die. But that he would be the husband to the widow. He would be my comfort. You know, there is no lack in him, no matter what our circumstance. And, you know, <laughs> the following day, and this is what he showed me, and this, uh, this involves this, this knowing, um, him knowing us. I was praying with Chris and saw things entirely differently. It was just like, that's gone and the spirit comes and there's life. You know, this, this picture. And now we see and we know his word. We know his truth. It's just come in. Instead of this dark monster having to be fought, I saw our loving father so totally in control, and working in both Chris and I at such a level of intimacy that it was a matter of great rejoicing. Whoa! No one was rejoicing because we were suffering with sickness, but here he was saying there is something more, there's something more. I am doing something. And this is the bit that I wanted to share specifically. I saw him stripping us, but get this, this is the picture. The picture was of a groom tenderly undressing his new bride. But there was this covering up. You see, he wants to know us, and we keep covering ourselves with things that have been learned from man's misconception in religion. It's like our version of peace. This is what he showed me. Our version of joy and righteousness. He's peeling off so that in our nakedness and vulnerability we can truly know him and be known. We then we receive his peace and his joy and righteousness now because there's none of ours getting in the way. Do you see what our covering does? And these are good-looking coverings. You know, these are the coverings that we think please him. But he has to come, and he comes in love and, and strips away, but it's not a harsh thing. It, it's a beautiful act of love to bring us into freedom because he knows while we're covered with our vision, we don't have the freedom. 
We are not in him in the way that he wants us to be in the fullness of him. Do you get what I'm saying? Now our peace, as he defines it, is tied up with the total understanding of his love for us in our unclothed state. Nothing can touch us then, eh? Yeah? So it's not a cover, cover, cover. It's a walk into the light. Didn't he say that? Walk into the light and walk in the light as I am in the light. That is a totally different, that is the opposite of the fall. It is pre the fall, they walked together. Do you see how he's come to restore? And this takes the work of the Holy Spirit in us. And it also takes our cooperation with it, yeah? So our joy now is unblemished by anything but sight of him. He's the fullness of our vision. And delight in the fullness of knowing him. Nothing else can possibly compare. Our righteousness now coming from his gift totally means that we rest from our works and are working things out. I had the sense that we were, this is Chris and I I'm talking about, we were exactly where he wants us. In a season where this deep, intimate stripping, revealing and knowing can take place. This is like being in the centre of his palm. This is what he showed me. And indeed, his previous word to Chris about taking his hand, he asked him, will you take my hand and walk with me through the process? Well before we knew anything of what was going on. That is the assurance of the closeness of him as he walks so intimately. He is not observing from afar. Therefore, we are blessed so greatly in a position of honour and security and love. Not, as I had previously been thinking, in a place of battle. To be held by the hand of God is the greatest and safest thing possible. I can say that as personal testimony. I also prayed, and remember this was the Holy Spirit, just this is what it is, Sandra, that we would learn and have completed in us everything that is his purpose for this season. As I sensed, very similarly to when we lost um, Nathaniel, that this season will pass. And the importance is that every day and night our hearts are surrendered and resting in his hands and our eyes and thoughts are toward him intentionally to see what he is showing and revealing and teaching. I am so grateful for the way he, he works. Aren't you? That we have this loving groom that works with us on this intimate level and he's doing it with us as a community. How cool is that? That we get to walk and support each other in this. I know that morning that my heart rested in the safety of his bosom. There was only rejoicing that responded in the prayer that his beautiful eternal work would be completed. Now some of you may struggle with that, but hear me. It is not a testimony saying I do not believe that God is going to heal Chris. It is rather his insight into what he is doing in us during the process of healing. This is a deep work. It's an eternal work. It's not relying on the outward circumstance to make it happen. And it's not summed up in whether he's well or not. Yeah? What an incredible blessing that I get to walk with people and the people that I shared that with were able to come back and I submitted it. I, you know, I was confused. I submitted it, said, please correct me if I'm wrong. Please guide me, shepherd me, whichever way I want to invite you to speak into my life. And love came back and so did this, this, lifting your eyes to the eternal purpose, keep going for the deep work. To walk with people like that, this is so important, and this is, this is 
part of this vulnerability and this honesty to have this true work worked in us. He's after a genuine work that transforms us into the image of his son. Yes, this involves wrestling like Greg spoke of last week. But as I've experienced his peace, joy and love, all these diminish into insignificance. So I'm just going to end very quickly with um, just a wee testimony of what happened in the hospital. Some of you um, were here whenever it was, a couple of weeks ago. Um, Beautiful provision of God. So that day, um, Chris, his pain levels just got really, really, um, like, uncontrollable, and suddenly came on, and that has happened a bit. So... um, who happens to be here but Dave Huntley, our wonderful paramedic? Okay, so number one. So he sees him, immediately takes him out and says, yep, assesses, right, yes, you need an ambo, you need morphine. So he's on the phone, ringing up the, the, the ambulance, saying exactly what he needs, in his you know, medical way. And, um, uh, and then I went out and I rang... Um, you know, when he was all settled in that, and we were just trying to get his temperature down and everything, um, the, I rang our David, who is um, a trainee paramedic and was working at the time, he was doing um, patient transfer work, and he said, oh, mum, you know, you're going to be waiting for ages, I've just heard like five or six dispatches go out in the last ten minutes. Turns out that day was one, in fact, there was a Dominion Post article about it, it was one of the record, you know, um, breaking days, Sunday, you know. So we were expecting a long wait. No, within 10 minutes or so, Ambo comes up. We've got this amazing intensive paramedic um, who helped him and put morphine in. And um, then when we get to ED, it's bedlam, standing room only. And, but by the time that I've gone and parked the car, Chris is in the only cubicle with its own toilet. How does that happen? So he's there in this, uh, this provision, and we're hearing code two in, in waiting room, code two in this cubicle. It's all happening behind this curtain. And the, Chris was pretty out to it with the morphine and everything. And, um, and then I, I was just playing some worship music. And um, because I love him, not because it's, oh, this is the thing I should do. (laughs) I love him. (laughs) So I was just playing and worshipping, and um, and then it's it started on um, a golden oldie, um, Michael W. Smith, Agnes Day, and it just started in. And as it started, it was like something's. Something's happening. <laughs> I just sensed in my spirit, eh? Something's happening. And then I see all these angels around his bed. I've never seen angels in my life. I'm not talking about I saw them with these. I saw them in my spirit. They were there, I tell you. They were right round. You know the thing that struck me with this? You know how they were ministering? They were ministering in adoring Father God. They just adore him. And, and my worship was just one with the, It was the most phenomenal experience. I was adoring him and they were adoring him. And, and it was like I couldn't see mouths moving, but they were just emanating this love for God all around them. And, and they were peaceful, they were strong. But what struck me was the love for Father. The love for Father. Incredible. And, you know, he whispered in my ear and and said, Sandra, remember that all my angels are there as ministering spirits for those that will inherit salvation. And it was a comfort. It was a comfort to know, but the impression was, he is so incredible. It was a bit embarrassing when the doctor came in because I was bawling my, like, I was, 
and every time I, th my, my, I was so taken up with it, the tears were still coming, and then my son came in, and he came in immediately, and he said, what's the wrong, what's, thinking there was something terrible, and all I could manage, like, he said, well, come on, I'll give you a hug, so I was giving him a hug, and I said, it's, it's good, it's good, I just saw angels right round Dad's bed, you know, and the presence of God that, that Chris felt, I mean, he felt that even though he didn't see that, it just stayed with us for hours, even after we, left, we came home. So God is beautifully present and intimately close. And I just, I just want to give us this opportunity now to, I'm hoping that this has encouraged you to come when he's saying this word, why do my people draw away? Can we hear his cry? Can we hear his cry and come back and draw near? And, and please don't be afraid anymore of being uncovered. It is the safest place to be with him. And it is the most freeing place. Love sets us free. And he wants us in the fullness of who he is. So maybe if we can, what are we going to sing? You're beautiful. Oh, awesome. So just while we do that, I just want us to spend some time drawing near, drawing near our innermost parts to him. And there may be specific things that you need to own up to. <laughs> there may have been some things that you feel like you're downplaying and you need to take ownership for things and, and come in honesty and humility and um, let that word just percolate inside and produce the life that, that he has sent it for, eh? Amen? Thank you, guys.